Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the TD Chicks podcast. This episode, I spoke with Robbie Tallin, a promising young professional baseball player with the Washington Nationals who had his career cut tragically short and almost lost his life, all because a police officer made a mistake. Robbie, we're excited to have this opportunity to really get down to the nuts and bolts and unload for your listening audience some of the details of your story who may not know you. So let's begin with your career, your sports career, and what that was like for you. Uh, I um, grew up in baseball, first of all. My dad was a um, a 14-year Major League veteran, four World Series rings as a player, two as a coach. I grew up in baseball and loving the game. And so, you know, that to me was what I was supposed to do. You know, I I thought that would be my career. That would be my destiny. And and so I grew up wanting to be just like my dad. And so I played baseball all through, you know, the league and and college. And and I uh, had an opportunity to play professional with the Washington Nationals. Can you give us some sort of sense of your family life and, and what it was like growing up? I grew up with a huge family. My my mother is one of 11. My dad is one of nine. So my family means everything to me. We're very, very close, very tight-knit. And so, I mean, my family is, is my heart. They have my entire heart. And, um, you know, life was good. I mean, it seemed like everything, I had everything that I wanted and, and needed. And uh, my only focus was, was was baseball, to be honest with you. Let's talk a little bit about that. Your focus was sports. You come from a strong family. You have very strong family values and heritage and strength. And and then all of a sudden, at a moment in your career where you're really finding your way in life, let's go back to 10 years ago when you were 21 years old and tell us about the day prior to the incident that you had this altercation with the police and what that was like. Well, I... Uh well, you may not know, but unless you get drafted in the higher rounds, you know, you get a sizable signing bonus. Most of the, you know, minor leaguers have to work in the offseason. So I was working at a restaurant and uh, in training, getting ready for, for the upcoming season. And so I was initially supposed to be off that night. And then one of my coworkers asked if I could pick up her shift. So I went in and I guess my coworker never put my name down to pick up her shift. So then they said, you know, you're off. So I said, okay, well, I went back home and got my little cousin and um, we went out to eat and met up with some friends and played pool for a little bit. And then, you know, that was it. Then we went home like we always do. It's not uncommon for us to come home after midnight. You know, we go out and, and hang out with friends and, uh, that was that. So what happened on the way home that changed your life forever? On the way home, nothing on the way. Um, we did what we usually do. We worked up an appetite playing pool. And, and so we stopped by a fast food spot and got some burgers and pulled up in front of the house, parked on the street. You didn't realize when you pulled up at your house that you were being followed? Not initially, no. I pulled up in front of my house. I parked on the street which I had done for, at the time I had had that car, the same car for four years. So I I parked on the street for four years with that car in front of that house that I lived in for 15 years at the time. 
For the benefit of our listeners, the police officer had begun to tell you from the convenience store and had already begun to run information on your tags. Correct. According to his report, he had wrongly put in the wrong number for your license number on the tag, and it had come up stolen. Right. So when you pulled up in front of the house, you have a police officer who has already determined by mistake that is later determined by court records that, in fact, your car was stolen when, in reality, it was the wrong number that preceded this altercation. So you're getting out of the car. And at this point, do you know that the police are behind you? I got out of my car and I saw that there were headlights shining on the inside of my door. So I just kind of stuck my head back and I saw that it was a police car, but obviously I hadn't done anything wrong. So there was nothing for me to be alarmed about. And, you know, for my parents and I lived in Bel Air, which is a uh, city within the city of Houston, population about 3000 people. So it's, you know, and for them to have their own police department, you know, it's not uncommon for them to patrol the streets at all hours of the night. So it was something that I was accustomed to. Now, Bel Air is an upper-class suburban bedroom community of the upper echelon of Houston. Correct. Yeah, it's a very uh, affluent community with a very, very good baseball program, of which I played four years that I went to school there. So it's very much a staple in the community. And, you know, my parents and I had moved into Bel Air when I was very young, maybe like seven or eight years old. Was it common to have a lot of African-Americans in the community that you lived in? No, not at all. I'm I'm not sure what the number is now, but at the time, the population of blacks in the city of Bel Air were uh, less than 2%. Okay. So I wanted to set some sort of atmosphere for the listener to understand a little bit more about Bel Air. You pull up in Bel Air in front of your home where you live, where you've grown up. And the police officer has already run information to determine that he thinks that he is pulling up to arrest or cover a stolen automobile, but you're actually just coming home with your friends late at night. That's right. Yep. So you open the car door and he says, what? Well, he didn't say anything initially. I opened the door. I saw that there were lights. I turned my head and saw that there was a police car. And I stuck my head back in and got my food and and stuff out of the car like normal. Again, I hadn't done anything, so there was nothing for me to be scared about or freak out and take off or anything like that. So I just did what what I normally do and just got my stuff out of the car and walked up the driveway. At that point, he drove by me, didn't say anything. He drove by me and um, made a U-turn at the end of the street, which we lived on a uh, cul-de-sac. And so he made a U-turn at the end of the street and parked and turned the headlights off. So he just had like the uh, dimmers on, I guess you call them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and my cousin Anthony and I just walked up the driveway and, you know, business as usual. It wasn't until I got to the front porch, I was getting my key. I had my hand in my pocket, getting my keys out. And then at that point we heard, get on the ground. And, uh, you know, I turned to the direction the voice came from, and there was a gun and flashlight drawn at us. And I looked just past the officer and saw that he had now driven back up and parked nose to nose with my vehicle on the street. What was going through your mind, your heart, your emotions at that point? You know, I, I was a little irritated. I was annoyed. 
because for a number of reasons. One, I hadn't done anything. That's first and foremost. Number two, this was my house. This was my car. You know, you know, I, I was um, I wasn't afraid. I was more. You know, I thought he'd just come to harass two black kids, to be honest with you. So the initial conversation wasn't, I want to see your driver's license and registration or any check to see who you were or what was going on. It was get on the ground. It was get on the ground. In so many words, you're driving a stolen car. You know, you said get on the ground. I said, for what? He said, that, you know, we got a report of a stolen car, you know, that that's a stolen car. And I said, no, sir, that's my car. He said, get on the ground. I said, sir, that's my car. I'm not getting on the ground because I hadn't done anything. I can show you my driver's license and my insurance. This is my car. This is my house. He said, I'm not going to tell you again, get on the ground. And he increasingly became more agitated, you know, as the conversation went on. Now, by this time, how many other police officers have begun to gather around? Uh, It's still just the one. We learned uh, a little bit later that he had been calling for backup, that he had called for backup initially when I parked, but they, you know, hadn't gotten there yet. So it was just him and and the two of us. When you said, I'm not getting on the ground because this is my car, did you end up on the ground? I mean, what happens next? Uh, What happened next was that my parents, having just gotten home themselves not too long before us, heard voices from inside the house. They heard yelling from me and Anthony. And they said later that they thought that he and I were arguing, that Anthony and I was arguing. So they came to the door to see what we were arguing about. And I saw my dad through the front door. There's this like window pane where I can see inside the house a little bit. So I saw him unlocking the door to come out. And I said to myself, okay, I'll get on the ground now because my dad's going to come out and fix everything. You know, he's going to show them that proof of insurance or, you know, this is our house or, you know, that's my car. And so I said, okay. So when I saw him unlock the door, I said, okay, you know what? I'll get down. So um, I got down on my knees as he came out and, and uh, he turned and saw that it was a police officer and threw his hands up. He said, what's going on? He said, we got a report of a stolen car. He said, no, sir, this is our car. This is my house. This is, this is my son. This is my nephew. And the officer said, uh, no, that, that's a stolen car. You know, I don't want to hear that. And I was yelling. I said, no, that's my car. My dad said, shut up and get down. Shut up, get down. And at that point, the officer took my dad at gunpoint over to uh, another car that was parked in the driveway or suburban that was parked in the driveway uh, at gunpoint. So you put a gun to your father who came out of his house and took him over to the car. What kind of conversation occurred there? Uh, I'm not sure. I just know that... uh, my dad comes outside in his pajamas. The officer's not listening to him that this is our house, that's our car. He doesn't say, okay, well, you know, everyone calm down and let's see some ID and kind of figure this thing out. He uh, just goes zero to 10. At what point does your mother become involved in this? My mother followed him outside. So my mother walked out right after him. And so my dad is at gunpoint being searched up against a car in the driveway. Anthony and I are down at this point on the ground. And my mom is saying, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. I can't believe this. We've been here 15 years. This is nothing like this has ever happened to us. 
you know, that's my son's car. This is our house. You know, you're making a huge mistake. At that point, then the backup arrived. About when my dad was being taken over to the car. My cousin was on his phone when we initially walked up to the house. So he was on the phone with another cousin of ours who ended up hearing the entire thing happen. So, and I believe to this day, that's one of the things that saved my life. Anthony was on his phone on the ground, trying to make sure my cousin heard everything. And Were you feeling at this point that you and or your family were in the kind of danger that this might not have a good end? You know what? Not to the extreme that it actually went to. I didn't think that anyone would be shot. I thought, if anything, you know, we'd be roughed up a little bit, maybe arrested. I knew it wasn't good, but I didn't, I didn't think it would be to that degree. Let's talk about how you got shot. My mother was trying to be a protector. She was, you know, telling us to shut up and, and she'll handle this. And so she heard someone say, get up against the wall. And she turned and saw that it was the backup, the backup officer. And she said, me, you want me to get, get against the wall? This is my house. You know, I live here. This is my son. This is my nephew. This is our car. This is my house. And at that point, the officer grabbed her by the arm so hard that she had bruises and dragged her over to our garage door and threw her up against the door. And at that point, I lost it. I pushed myself up and said, get your hands off my mom. And the officer didn't say a word. He just took his gun and and shot me in the chest. Now, were you armed? No. No. Describe to me that feeling in that moment, in that moment of excitement and rage. Did you have any sense? Did you get a warning? Did you feel like you were about to be shot? I didn't know. I didn't get a warning at all. I thought I would. And in fact, I heard the gun go off. And I thought, he didn't shoot me. I know he didn't. Then I started to feel a little bit of pressure. And I said, well, well, maybe, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how often this happens. I don't think cops keep rubber bullets in their, you know, in their guns. But I said, maybe, maybe he hit me with a rubber bullet or something. I know he didn't just shoot me. And not even a split second later, I blinked and I was on the ground. And I heard my mom, I heard my mom say, oh, God, I can see smoke coming from his chest. This is December. It's a cool evening night. You're in your front yard in front of your mother and your father and your friend. And you're laying on the ground, bleeding, thinking what? Thinking this is it. I kept saying, oh, God, oh, God, is this really how my life ends? Is this really is this really it? I kept saying that over and over and over again. My mom started to pray. And uh, I just knew it was it. I just knew my life was was over. When you start talking about the realization, because you started out saying, you know, you pulled up, you saw the police officers behind you, you weren't afraid, you hadn't done anything wrong, you got the things out the car, you go to the door to open up the door, you're still cool with it, you hadn't done anything wrong. Even when he confronted you, you were irritated, but you thought everything would turn out all right, and now your thoughts have turned to, this is it. Yeah. 
Yeah. My life is over. Physically, physically, what are you feeling? You've been shot in the chest. What does that feel like? Uh, it's, it's not fun. Bishop, let me tell you, it's, uh, it's, it's not uh, something I would wish on anyone. It's, uh, it's a lot of um, stinging, burning. You know, I, I read somewhere that the force behind a, uh, a 45 caliber bullet, which is what I was hit with, was, is about 2,000 pounds. So it's like an elephant standing on your chest. I couldn't breathe. And, um, and if that wasn't enough, I needed more proof that I was shot. I, I stuck my hand under my shirt and pulled it out and it was covered in blood and there was blood, I mean, dripping down my forearm. And I just, I, I, I mean, I, I knew I was dead. I knew I was about to die. You become one of the few black men that really became prominent in the press before Michael Brown, before Trayvon Martin, before the list goes on and on of all the young black men who have been in the press recently. The unique thing about your situation is that you survived. We don't have a sense of what they may have gone through or what they may have felt or if they had time to feel anything at all. But there you are laying on the ground, on the cold, in December, with your mother praying. Your father is being accosted by the police, and you think you're dying. You've stuck your hand in your chest. Your hand comes out wet with blood. And this 21-year-old young man with the future that you thought you would realize has now been abruptly arrested, and you think you're dying. Yeah. With no weapon? You have no weapon? I have no weapon, no. No. One of the other things that people don't realize is that on the same night, there were two other black men shot and killed by police. One in, uh, in Oakland, Oscar Grant, who was the subject of the movie Fruitville Station and Adolph Grimes in New Orleans. All three were unarmed, shot within, you know, 36 hours of each other. And I was the, the one that lived. You know, when I hear you talk about it, it's almost visible. We can almost see the whole scenario. And I wondered in my mind, how many nights over the last 10 years have you relived that moment? Oh, my God, every night. I mean, there isn't, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about it. I, uh, I still have the bullet in me. They were unable to remove it. So that's a constant reminder every day. And I'm in aches and pains every day because of it. Not only that, when I go to take a shower, I take my shirt off and I got these, you know, scars. When you talk about the physical scars, mm-hmm. let's, let's talk a little bit about the scars that people will not be able to see. How has this scarred you as a man, as a, as a person? You know, it's, um, it's been really difficult because, especially within the last maybe four years or so, this kind of thing seems to happen more often than not. And so it's something that I have to relive every day knowing that this, this was me. These kids were somebody's son and cousin or nephew or even dad. Um, And then dealing with the justice system, you know, having to go into depositions and go into court and trials and and look at the man in the face that shot me, you know, having to sit across from him at a desk at a deposition with the gun that he shot me with on his hip. Let's get into the court part of it, but there's one other thing I wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. (sighs) 
There's obviously outrage all over the country from both sides of this issue. There are people who are outraged that the police would be challenged or questioned at all, that they point out to us over and over every day that the police are out there fighting and laying their lives down on the line, which they are. For us as American citizens, we would not be able to survive the atrocities of 9-11 and countless other things that happen on a day-to-day basis without the assistance of of valiant police officers who work hard every day to make things work. Those who support those police officers, which should be all Americans, many of those Americans feel outraged that anybody would suggest that there are bad police officers. They say that the percentage is very, very low without really any data to substantiate it. But for you in that moment and for every time you hear of an incident It is very plausible to you, it is very real to you, that it is possible for a black man with no gun, young man in a affluent neighborhood or any neighborhood, to be accosted, challenged, and then shot without questioning or stun guns or any of the other options that are available. When you see that over and over again, do you feel anger? Do you feel frightened when you see police officers behind you? What is the range of emotions as a survivor of this incident? I'm angry at the naivete or blatant, blatant ignoring what's going on. You listen, I do not hate cops. Okay. You know, people ask me that all the time. Do you hate police officers? No, absolutely not. I have cousins, you know, very, very close cousins who are more like my brothers that are police officers. I do not hate cops. I think what they do is remarkable. I think the ones that are out there that are doing their job and serving the people like they're supposed to are wonderful. However, I get angry at those who, you know, obviously there are bad apples in every bunch. They're just like anything else. There are good doctors and bad doctors, good teachers and bad teachers. But I think the ones that are bad and take advantage of their power and their position should be held accountable. And that's where I get angry. Let's talk about that accountability, because there are systems in place to evaluate these types of incidents. When you went to the criminal justice system, let's talk about that journey and what you went through in that process. There is a process, but when we fail to complete the process or go through the process is where we fail as a nation and the justice system fails us. The, uh, the officer was indicted for aggravated assault by a public servant. During the trial, he was he and his band of brothers got up on the stand and lied and do what they do and, you know, protect each other. And so the officer was acquitted. We filed a federal civil lawsuit that was thrown out by Judge Melinda Harmon in Houston. Just throughout the case and ordered us to pay the officer's court costs for the case. Wow. At that point, we were in the process of filing an appeal and we said, can we wait to pay this this judgment for being shot? By the way, can we wait to pay this judgment till after our appeal? She said, no, you have to pay it now. So after the officer being acquitted, after the case being thrown out, after being shot and ordered to pay the officer's court costs, the officer who shot me. At this point, are you feeling, are you being treated like a criminal again? Or do you feel like it was 
a further injury, insult to injury Absolutely. in this process? It almost sounds like not only what happened on your front porch in front of your house was unjust, it also feels like, as you tell this narrative from your perspective, that the criminal justice system did not offer you a fair and equitable opportunity. No, not at all. And, you know, the thing that that angers me even more is that my family has been blessed beyond measure to have supportive people around us and to, and to have the resources to even take it as far as we did. But how often does this happen and the families are in low-income areas and don't have the resources? To those persons that might be listening that think, you know, these are two men who incidentally happen to be two black men having a discussion and have some inbred biases, perhaps unknowingly because of our background circumstances or situation, it seems that that is not totally true because when the case finally went to the U.S. Supreme Court, all nine justices agreed that the lower court had blew off the claim that they needed to go back and take a fresh look at the issue, quote, unquote. So finally, if you have enough money and enough resources and enough tenacity to go far enough, eventually at the Supreme Court, you get some recognition of the fact that this has been mishandled by more than people of our skin tone who now validate a truth that you knew while you were still bleeding with warm blood coming out on the cold ground in December. Yeah, Is that sure. right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that was a huge, huge victory for us. And that was something that we had been praying for. We prayed for, for all nine justices to rule in our favor. That's what we prayed for. So we were expecting it. Give me a sense of when you got that verdict, all nine Justices, yeah. totally validating something that you knew as a 21-year-old boy with the feel of your blood running in between your fingers. All of a sudden, after all of this money, all of this pain, all of these atrocities, you now get some level of validation. What is the emotional feeling at that moment for you and for your family, your mother? You know, I would like to say that that it was a complete and total shock. But, you know, like I said, that's what we were praying for. You know, we were specifically praying that all nine justices ruled in our favor, that all nine justices would see that this was mishandled severely. So when you got what you prayed for, how did that feel? When we got what we prayed for, it renewed our fight. You know, we felt validated, you know, that finally, like finally someone saw this for what it is, a severe mishandling of, of justice. To your point, to families that do not have the resources, who are at the mercy of court-appointed attorneys, they would have never had the finances nor the fortitude to go to the extent that you did. When you see that, how does it make you feel? Well, it's not something that I'm happy about, that everyone doesn't have the resources to do it, and that, more specifically, that people that don't have the resources are the ones that are most targeted. Should justice be expensive? Should justice be brought about? You know, so much that is done in our country is about money. If you have enough money, you might have a better chance at winning an election. If you have enough money, you might be able to get this done or that done or get into this kind of hospital or that kind of hospital. Should justice be something that is determined by finances? Is Lady Justice as blind as we would like to think? You know, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be about money. You know, that's not what 
what was written in the Constitution. It's not justice for all if you have if you make a certain amount. I think it takes rulings like mine. It takes people like Benjamin Crump. It takes people like yourself. It takes people like Michael Eric Dyson. It takes those kind of forward thinking people to speak out against it and to change laws. And it takes those people to encourage and influence and inspire the young people to come up and grow up and be justices that hold up the law like it's supposed to be held and hold those people accountable. That's what it takes. It takes those kind of people. Justice shouldn't be expensive. It should be just. It should be equal for all. So we've got nine Supreme Court justices who say something is wrong with how this case has been seen. The issue has been reviewed. It has been researched. And they come to an end that you had been praying for. Explain to me then why, in light of all of that information that has been prayed for and that you have judiciously gone after and fought for, explain to me why the police officer who shot the gun is now promoted and still working in the police department in Houston. You know, I think it goes to accountability again. They have this code of the badge, police officers do, that a lot of them, let me not uh, make a blanket statement, but a lot of them have this blind code of honor that says we're going to protect you no matter what, even if, you know, we don't like what's happening. And so I think in Bel Air, they they live by that code and, and... They spoke out all the time that he didn't do anything wrong. And despite mistakes, despite them making mistakes, they never even said, oh, we made a mistake, you know. And so I think there's this blind support for with most officers, there's blind support for them that says that they can do no wrong. And so you have a year and a half paid vacation while you're on administrative leave and then you come get your job back and, you know, you're, quote unquote, an outstanding officer and you're promoted. You know, that's what it, what it boils down to. To the listener, according to an independent study by The Guardian, 1,146 people were killed by police in 2015. 1,146 people. 306 of those were African Americans. So far in 2016, 827 people have been killed by police. 202 of them are African-Americans. Are we dealing with an epidemic in this country as it relates to these types of incidents that happen to normal American citizens? I'm not saying in every case, perhaps not in many cases, but in too many cases, do we have too many people like you who are weaponless and end up bleeding and on a stretcher? Yeah, you know, I I think now is a great opportunity to change the hiring process for police officers. I think the vetting process needs to be different. I think there needs to be more sensitivity training. I think there needs to be more community relations training. That's really how you police the community. You don't do it by scaring people off. You don't do it by threats. You do it with relations, with relationships. Doesn't it seem strange that you would not have a hole in your chest and a bullet that you're living with in your body If there had been a five-minute conversation that said, let me check your registration. That's all. That's all it would have taken. One sentence would have stopped one bullet that would have saved one family from having an atrocious life. And one officer even would have went home to his family in peace at night for the lack of one sentence. That's it. How do you move forward 
Let's talk about that with your life. How will you or do you talk to your children when you see the challenges that are continuing to happen in this country as it relates to criminal justice in all of its facets? How do you protect those that you love now? What do you tell them about altercations with the police? You know, that's the most difficult question I've ever been asked. I mean, that's the question that I have the most trouble with, because on one hand, you could, you know, spout off a bunch of cliches and, oh, you know, to kind of pacify the situation. But I mean, in reality, in my opinion, you shouldn't have to have a conversation about what to do, you know, or what not to do when you see police officers. You shouldn't have to have that conversation because you shouldn't be fearful about someone that's supposed to protect you. You know, it's like a mother or father, or aunt or uncle. You know, you shouldn't you shouldn't fear them. You shouldn't fear the people that are supposed to protect you, in my opinion. And so, I, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly don't. I don't know what I would tell my, my children or even cousins or nieces or nephews. I, I don't know. That's the question I have the most trouble with. Uh, I don't know. What do you tell yourself when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're back out there on the cold ground? What, what do you tell yourself? That I'm here for a reason. That God kept me here for a reason. You know, you think about this this list of names and you see their faces and you, you hear their stories. And I mean, it, it was supposed to be me. Not supposed to be. It should have been me. I should have been in that in that list, too. But but I wasn't. And I'm here for a reason. And I know that. And I believe that the entire time, you know, even though. It hasn't always been easy. In fact, it's been a lot of dark days, more dark than bright days. But that's what I tell myself, that I'm here for a reason. And, and, you know, I thought initially that my purpose and my destiny was to be this amazing baseball star. But now I see it's uh, to be the voice for the voiceless. Okay, when you look at this, to be a voice for the voiceless, I want to ask you this. If you were to see Lieutenant Cotton, He's lieutenant now. Now lieutenant. Yeah. Yeah. Promoted. Yeah. What would you say to him? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's another one of those. I've seen him quite a bit, you know, obviously more than I would like to with court and depositions. I, I've seen him quite a bit over the last uh, few years. You know, I don't think I would have anything to say. I mean, there, there's been a lot of anger and a lot of resentment that I'm still you know, dealing with. I could tell you, you know, something to, you know, make myself sound very stoic and all of this is beneath me, but I honestly don't know. I don't know what I would say, if anything. But what I do know is that God has something for me and I'm very, very uh, excited to see what that is. And so I don't think I have to worry about God. I don't have the information right in front of me, but he looks like a fairly young man too. So you have two young men, similar age, would you say? I think he was uh, maybe in his late 30s at the time. Okay, so he was in his late 30s. You were 23 years old. 23, okay. yeah. So when you look at his promotion, and he may be a great officer. I'm not going to try him or anything like that. He may be a great officer. And I think that one of the mistakes that we make in this conversation is that we often talk about the majority of the police officers are good and that there might be a few bad apples in the barrel or, or whatever the metaphor is we choose to use. But I would like to point out, or at least offer for consideration, that you don't have to be a bad person to make a bad choice. Right, 
Right. And I, I've said before, I don't think he's a bad guy, to be honest with you. I think the guy, to be clear, Cotton was the second officer that shoved my mom. He wasn't the first one that initially stopped us. I think he's more nasty than Cotton is. With all of the depositions and, and testimonies with trial, Cotton embellished uh, quite a bit, but he did it because I think he was fearful. He was scared about what was going to happen to him. With regards to the first officer, Officer Edwards, he wasn't on the hook for anything. He wasn't being tried. He wasn't fired. He wasn't on administrative leave. So he was untouchable, and he let you know it. He had much more of a, a nasty disposition than Cotton. But again, I don't, I don't think Cotton's a bad guy. I've looked him in his eyes several times, and, and I didn't see evil. I didn't see a bad guy. I, what I saw was a guy that freaked out and made a mistake, and that's okay. But you know, the problem I have is when you don't apologize or when you don't own up to your mistakes. And I don't think he's a bad guy. You know, I, I know. We've seen thousands of people marching in Charlotte and some in Baton Rouge and Tulsa and in Atlanta and New York City. Uh, do you think that the people are angry because of the split-second choice that the officer made? Or do you think that the vast majority of people who are angry are angry because there is no policing of the police officers that we can trust that is not tainted by who's running for office this year, who's up to be DA, who's in to be before the mayor, and what constituency you need to please in order to be, quote unquote, tough on crime becomes code for being tough on us? What issue do you think drives people to leave the comfort of their homes and march up and down the streets in the middle of the night? I think it's all of it. I, I think um, I think sometimes, in some cases, people may not know why they're doing it. They just do it just to do it. But I think it's all of it. There's no policing of the police. There's no accountability. There's no transparency in, in a lot of cases. I think the transparency that you have now is because whenever there is an incident, because we have all of these high-tech devices that people start pulling out cell phones. And so you're almost forced to release footage or release evidence or re things of that nature, or release the videos or, you know, the dash cams. But I think it's all of it. When there's a shooting in a uh, police department, who does the investigation? You know, that police department. They don't have special prosecutors. You know, they don't have outside agencies in most cases doing these investigations. Uh, there has to be a certain fraternity amongst police officers to cover each other's back as they go into the most horrendous situations in the world to risk losing that support from your fellow police officers. It's almost like committing suicide. I've been told in private from many police officers that even when they see wrong, they are uncomfortable with saying that something is wrong because they fear that they will have the consequences of not having the support of their comrades when they walk into these horrific situations. Yeah, I completely understand. But then the question comes to mind, what do you stand for then? What do you stand for if not for justice as a police officer or, if, or anybody? You know, if you, you know, see somebody robbing a bank and look the other way, you're just as guilty, in my opinion. Absolutely. Let, let me ask you this. You said you looked into the eyes of the officer. You don't think that he's a bad person. You think that he made a bad choice, but he's not a bad person. Conversely, you don't sound like a bad person. You don't sound like a stereotypical uh, idea that some people might have in a situation like this. A successful career, successful family, great neighborhood, articulate, intelligent, young black male. Wouldn't you think that a 
young black male and a relatively young white male would not allow the color of blue between them to stop them from finding common ground. What is it going to take for us to sit down and stop this killing? You know, that's another question I get a lot. I think, um, I think it starts with a conversation, you know, like you mentioned uh, a little bit ago that, you know, all of this could have been prevented with one sentence. I think it takes for some of us to step back and step outside of ourselves and have a conversation about what we're really fearful about and what our concerns are. And I think until we do that and and do it seriously, I think we're going to still continue to have these problems. I mean, I think it takes those in positions of power to start holding people accountable. If you march just to march, or if you post a picture on Instagram with a hashtag, I mean, okay, that's fine. But then what? What are you doing after that? Are you writing your mayor? Are you writing the police department? Are you writing your Congress people? Are you actively trying to get laws changed? Are you trying to, to hold people accountable? Or are you just posting just to post and be, you know, be with the hashtag thing. So, or are you voting? Are you voting? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That and, and that's another thing that my mother likes to hone in on is jury duty. You know, we get a jury summons in the mail and, you know, we don't want to take time off of work or we don't want to uh, find a babysitter or, or we just don't want to go because it's a waste of our time or whatever. But, you know, those people that are passionate and those people that march and stand up and post hashtags could have been on in jury selection to, for, for my, in my case, you know? Robbie, when we look at the story that you share with us, and thank you for your transparency and an opportunity to look into your heart and life, one of the things that seems to be consistent in the process from the praying mother who prayed while you were bleeding on the ground to the statement that you said, we got what we prayed for when nine Supreme Court justices ruled that there had been a misappropriation of justice or that this case needed to be reevaluated again. Prayer has been the conduit through which you have survived all the atrocities of life. I'm wondering, as you say, God has left you here for a purpose. Many of our listening audience will be people of faith. We cannot stop the bullet. And we cannot stop the injustices right now in the criminal justice system, though I think that there is a way forward to fix those things. What we can do is pray for you. How can we pray for you? What would be your request for our listeners to pray and support you as a person as you live out this life that almost got snuffed out through a bad decision? You know, I won't be one to say you don't have to pray for me, but... I think the focus should be on these officers. I think the focus should be on these police chiefs. You know, pray for a a clean heart. Pray for a clean heart. Pray for discernment. I hear you. Not to say don't pray for me. I'll take all the prayer I can get. Trust me, I'm I'm not one to to shield off blessings. But, yeah, I, I think you need to pray for... For, you know, like I said, these officers, these these judges, these police chiefs, pray for discernment, man. Pray for a clean, pure heart, you know. Jesus would have said something like that from the cross when he was wrongfully convicted as well. I think he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. I really appreciate it, both personally and professionally. 
Bishop, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. God bless you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining our conversation. This podcast was designed to give voice to others so that we can have appropriate conversations. This is T.D. Jakes. Thank you for listening. Thank you.